When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code POETRY. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 47, and we're recording on Friday, April 4th, 2014, even. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Three away from 50. I know. it's It's gone by so quickly, but it feels also like we've been doing this forever, which is the way that most I, that's good like relationships work. Childbearing is the same way. <laughs> and marriage. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically. Basically, yeah, that's uh, fair. Uh, speaking of 50, it's, it's, this is not going to be our 50th show, but it's going to be like our 51st I think our, show. Yeah, our 51st show. We had so much fun doing recommendations for holiday gift books that we're going to do moms, dads, grads, and beach read recommendations uh, in early April, right? I think about a week before Mother's Day, the show will drop. Yeah. So if you need a book recommendation for a mom, a dad, a graduate, uh, or if you are looking for beach reads, you know, good summer stuff uh, for yourself, drop us an email, podcast at bookriot.com, and let us know who you're shopping for, what you're looking for, that kind of thing, and uh, maybe we will pick out some books for you. Yeah, we had fun. We did a bunch of them, and uh, we'll, you know, so to Mother's Day, Father's Day, graduation, summer, heck, if you're just looking for a book for yourself. Oh, yeah, we're not going to be too us, picky. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the occasion for it, and we'll, yeah, we'll build it around that. But you, tell us something about you like, what you want to try, maybe. Maybe the uh, last couple things you read and really loved. Right. So um, get that uh, into us, podcast at bookriot.com. The other thing we want to mention, too, is that we're doing our annual call for contributor applications for Book Riot. Um, once a year, we open the floodgates and take applications from anyone who's interested in writing for Book Riot. We'll drop a link in the show notes to uh, give you the instructions for what you need to do there. Um, we're going to take a look at them for a couple weeks, and if we think what you do fits with what we do, that'd be great. Um, basically, you know, go read the site. If been reading the site for a while, um, or even if you haven't, go take a look and submit something that you would think would fit on the site, a couple of things, and we can tell, tell you more about it um, after you apply, or if you have a question, you can always email us um, over there, and there's a contact form over there. Yeah. So those are the two upcoming things for us. All right, let's get our first sponsor. We got Squarespace um, back. Squarespace is back. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. It's an all-in-one platform for doing stuff online. Um, here's what I say. I think if you spend more than an hour a month on your own website, you should be using Squarespace. There's a lot of free sites out there that you can do stuff with, but Squarespace offers you so much that makes it so easy to host your own beautiful easy to update, professional looking website. I think that's the thing that's hard to hard to understand about Squarespace versus some of the other blogging platforms. They've got all these templates, 20 of them, or over 20, they say, and I believe them, um, that right out of the box look just spot on beautiful. 
Yeah, that's what really separates it for me as well. Like, you know, Blogger and WordPress also have uh, templates that are just basic things that you can pick and customize, but it's a lot easier in Squarespace and they are much prettier across the board. Um, in six years of book blogging, I have seen a lot of really ugly blogs, <laughs> um, but, yeah, but, none, right. but none of the ugly blogs have been Squarespace blogs. That's right. And the other thing that we find increasingly, just looking at the traffic to our own site, is more and more people are coming from tablets and phones, and all of Squarespace's templates are responsive, which means they look great on phones and tablets as well, which is a super annoying thing if you've ever tried to design something that looks good on mobile and desktop. Um, all these templates are built from the ground up to look great on mobile and desktop. So here's what you do. You can start a free trial, no credit card required. I love this. Mm -hmm. You know, you, everyone knows the scam with these things where you need a free trial that you need a credit card. Well, then you forget to do it and you get billed, whatever. Squarespace doesn't do that. You can start right away playing around with it. You do sign up for Squarespace. It just starts at just $8 a month. And if you sign up for a year, you get your own domain name. That includes the registration and all that stuff that you have to do to have your own domain name. And if you do it through us, you get to use offer code poetry and you get 10% off. Um, and so we'd like to thank you. We'd like to thank Squarespace for their support. So go squarespace.com. And when you sign up, use offer code poetry, that'll get you the 10% off. And it'll also tell them uh, that you came from us. One other thing, if you've also done any web design or used a blogging platform, um, you know that the help section is basically a, a big joke. Um, and one thing Squarespace prides himself on is their 70 dedicated customer service people. That's called the Care Bear Lair, apparently. <laughs> I want to go to there. They're in their New York City office, um, and they're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's, it's you know, you don't have to be super serious to need a serious um, website, website and website platform, and Squarespace does it just for that. It's it's so easy and good-looking and affordable, and I don't know what else. I mean, what if, else do you want me to if say? If you uh, if you do it, or if you've already got a website up that you're using Squarespace for, let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com. Send us a link to your yeah. uh, to, to your blog, or if you decide to start one uh, now using this free offer, let us know so we can take a look at it. We'll give you a shout out in the future. Um, but we you know want to hear from you that you're using this product and uh, lets us know we're on the right track. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the news this week. Um, we've been charting. I think I've been increasingly interested in audiobook mm -hmm. as a business. I like audiobooks. I listen to them more and more. Uh, I know you do too. And it's not just us that we're hearing more about audiobooks. People are buying a lot more. From 2008 to 2013, revenue for the audiobooks market is estimated to have grown at an annualized rate of 12%. Oh, boy. To $1.6 billion, wow. according to a study from Ibis World which is one of those companies that does studies professionally. Um, that's interesting, but they are saying that the next five-year, the five-year rolling period that will end this year, that annualized rate will grow to 17%. Wow. So we've actually seen a real like hockey stick up mm -hmm. in the last couple of years in audiobook um, revenues. I, I think we've talked about this before, but the reasons are simple, if not... Um, Compli or they're simple, if not completely understandable, in that. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here. They're, I'm not either. <laughs> they're. It's like it's. It, they're these pretty simple reasons, but they're the result of a huge change in how we consume uh, material. Yes. That's what I'm trying to yeah, get at, right? That 
Yeah, well, audiobooks in particular used to be really expensive. Yeah, when right. They were, You'd buy 50 CDs right, to get The Hobbit were, on DVD. When they or were whatever. tapes or CDs, like I think when The Passage came out, audiobooks by Justin Cronin, um, audiobooks were still mostly CDs. D- the digital thing wasn't really big yet. And that's a like six or 700 page book. And I think the audiobook yeah. is like 48 hours. And <laughs> you, know, you could buy the hardcover for you know, 25 bucks or you could pay like $60 for the audiobooks and then have to deal with either uploading the CDs into your iTunes or like carrying them around in your iPod or listening to them in the car. Right. Um, and so that mechanism that now most people are interacting with audiobooks via digital downloads, either through something like Audible or a lot of libraries now have digital audiobook lending. Um, yeah. That's really changed. Plus, uh, affordability of mobile devices has increased significantly. So now you don't have to, uh, be, you don't have to have quite as much disposable income in 2013 to have a mobile device that's audible ready uh, as you would have had to in like, you know, 2008. Um, I was thinking about this the other day too. Um, we have a car in Brooklyn that I, I, I drive frequently, but not for long periods of time. So I'm not, I'm not often in that position of like needing to drive a half hour, an hour and listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did the other, um, we took a road trip and I was messing around listening to the radio. And I realized that my, my, um, tolerance for the radio, terrestrial radio, has plummeted. Oh, yeah. And I think it's related to listening to podcasts where even the ones I do have that have ads, they're relatively brief, but they're also like not as loud and like in your face and terrible. And there's not as many of them. I'm used to having my DVR where I can fast forward through mm-hmm. ads. Or if I'm watching on Hulu, you know, I know kind of what the deal is with the ads and I'm not subject to just the randomness, both of what's being played and the like so many, like yeah, 20 minutes, an hour of ads. It's, it's like the, insane. It's the lack of control. I think that bothers yeah. me. Like, um, as much as I'm future girl, I have the most, I mean, you know this about me that I have like the mm-hmm. most nineties taste in music ever. <laughs> and it's like, I hate the radio. Like I just hate not knowing what's coming on next. And if it's bad, having to skip around to the other thing and, and, you know, working from home, I'm in the same situation where I run a lot of short errands. I'm in the car, you know, a couple times a day to drive like five or 10 miles. I don't yeah. go very far usually. Um, and so it's either like I plug my phone into the stereo and I listen to Spotify, which is you know, exactly what I want in that moment. Um, without any commercials and without any guessing about, you know, or having to tolerate something that I don't like, or I listen to, you know, five or 10 minutes of my audiobook. And I was looking at, I keep stats about my reading and I was looking, this will be the first year that I've been an audiobook listener on Audible for a full calendar year. I think I really picked up about June last year and mm-hmm. I'm tracking right now to do, to read 25% more books uh, in 2014 than I completed in 2013. And it's all because of that, like the number of audiobooks that I'm going to consume, even just in yeah. five and 10 minute chunks. So I'm like, I'm putting more books into my brain. I, I think, and I don't keep stats, at least about, um, I, I keep track of what I've read in a given year, but I haven't been in the past good about, well, frankly, only the last couple of years, like everything would have been print. Right. right. <laughs> like, why well, keep track of that? But this year, I'd say maybe half of my my books are mm. audio because I have so much more time on the train, in the car, in between things. I'm walking to take uh, my son to daycare and back, walking around Brooklyn. I just have more. T- there's more of my available time for books is when I am not sitting in a chair looking at a screen or a page. Um, in, in you know, podcast too. It's on demand. You listen to what you want, when you want it, and you can listen to longer form things. 
because you can stop and start it. Where I never really thought about this. Radio has this problem where people who are listening might just be turning it on for 15 minutes. So you can't do even like a 30-minute short story. Yeah. You couldn't read, do like a segment on NPR where you're doing like a 25-minute short story. Like even This American Life, like it's built so that, you know, the stories are 10 or 15 minutes on mm-hmm. the radio, which, you know, you could theoretically listen to. But with an audiobook or longer form audio, there just hasn't been a way until now when we all have all. Yeah, I think Many of us have smartphones right. and other devices we can use. Yeah, you're hitting on that, the the time, there's a lot of time in our days that we couldn't previously use for yeah. reading. Like, you know, you can't read a book while you're driving your car, but you mm-hmm. can now listen to an audiobook while you're driving your car. And unless you're super coordinated, you can't read a print book while you're walking through Brooklyn and also pushing a stroller. Um, but you can do that with an audiobook. And so there's that real opportunity to turn what was previously not reading available time into reading time. Yeah, uh, with audio and you books. know what? People a are career as a long-distance trucker doesn't seem as bad as it used to. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of the audiobooks. Just think. Just think. I know. I um, do find myself like uh, uh, I listen to audiobooks, you know, on the way to the gym, and I find myself like running into the gym late. Like I'm late to classes because I'm trying to finish the thing that I'm listening to, or like finding excuses to run an errand when I'm near the end of a chapter because I need to be. I feel like I need to be doing something while I'm audiobooking. Like I can't just sit in my house and listen to an audiobook. I don't listen to them while I'm working because I can't mm-hmm. like pro- no, I can't no produce shot. like verbal written content right. with someone else's words coming into my ears. Um, but I'll, I will like, I'm going to walk the dog an extra long walk today or like leave the, my earbuds in while I'm doing the dishes. I don't know. I think a lot yeah, of people are incorporating books into their lives in new ways because of audiobooks, And I think that's just so cool. That's very cool. Um, let's do another story. Another, more statistics about how things are changing. Um, this is from an article in the Atlantic And every year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us what the typical American spends on a whole variety of things. And so this is a write-up in the Atlantic. We'll drop a link to the show notes if you want to see. There's a lot of interesting stats that aren't related directly to to the show and things we usually talk about, so you might want to see those. Um, But the one that – the reason that caught my eye is it has a category devoted to uh, money spent on reading materials. Mm which seemed a little random to me, actually, <laughs> because it's like education, healthcare, uh, your owned home, gas, housing, fruits and vegetables, entertainment, utilities, eating out, alcohol, vehicles, meats, apparel, tobacco, and read. Doesn't it seem a little random that reading is in there? I don't know. I mean, I'm I thought kind maybe of could... happy that... No, I'm thrilled that we get to talk about it. I thought it'd be lumped in with reading or some, or uh, excuse me, with education. Mm-hmm. But, God dang it. Or entertainment, entertainment is what I'm trying to say. Um, but anyway... So they broke out reading for us. And since 1984, um, the top 20% of earners in America, so those are the, the highest incomes, their expenditures on reading materials, books, magazines, and newspapers have dropped 66%. Hmm. Um, and for the bottom, I guess it's not quartile, I guess it would be quintile, right? The bottom 20% mm-hmm. um, of earners, their spending on reading has dropped 69%. Wow. Um, which we know why this is, mm-hmm. right? It's the internet, man. Yeah. Well, it doesn't break it out, books, newspapers, and mag. It, it doesn't break it out by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about you. Well, I mean, also, reading materials have gotten cheaper since 1984. Right. Like, well, have they? It adjusted for inflation, has a newspaper gotten, if like a print newspaper, has it gotten cheaper? Well, I'm thinking about books, like the rise in ebooks. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're yeah. in the, these upper quintiles and you're spending, you were spending disposable income on reading material in 1984, and now you're looking at now, you were probably buying 
print. I mean, you were buying print books in 1984. Yeah. And, the, and not discounted. Right. The higher your disposable income is, right, right. In, in 1984, Amazon didn't exist. And so it was probably... Nor did, nor did Barnes & Noble or re, yeah, so it was, Costco that were getting 40% right, off the cover Right. You're probably talking about full price, hardcover yeah. um, then. And now ebooks are significantly cheaper than hardcovers. They're a little bit cheaper than paperbacks. There's ebook subscription models. And if uh, it, those upper quintile folks also probably have access to the yeah. kinds of electronic devices that make it possible to read a lot of ebooks and to have an ebook subscription type thing. So I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Like you can read a lot of stuff for free on the internet, and not have to pay for it. Right. Well, cause I was thinking if you, you and I were you and I in 1984, I mean, we'd, we'd be subscribing to like, I dropped my subscription to the New Yorker a while ago, but mm -hmm. I probably have that. I probably would be subscribing to the New York times. Uh, I'd probably be subscribing to. Was like bookmarks probably the, magazine I mean, I'd probably thing be, in 1984. The Atlantic, yeah, the Atlantic that, that I'm reading this story on the internet. Like mm -hmm. I probably have the Atlantic. Um, I probably have Sports Illustrated. You know, a couple things and all those things I get online. Right, I would still have Paste Magazine as a right, yeah. print instead of right. digital. Some of those kinds right. of things. Um, and I think I, I didn't think about it until we just were sort of talking about it because we saw a study recently. The um, National Endowment, was it the National Endowment for the Humanities that, that did study that's how much time you spent or how many books you've read? Oh, um, I don't remember. And it was only, and they tracked it since like 1976, and it was only down like three or four percent. Right. So this is out of scale. This isn't about the time spent reading. Mm -hmm. This is just how much it costs you um, to read. So if you think about it in that way, I guess I was trying to think about this before we got on, we started recording. Like, is this a good or bad number? <laughs> I guess it depends on where you come from. If you're a publisher, mm -hmm. it's probably bad. If you're a consumer, it's probably good on the whole. Yeah, I think it, it is. Um, there's, I think the initial cost of getting access to ebooks is a hump. Like the, the more that we move towards digital content, the bigger the divide becomes between uh, folks in lower income brackets and the folks in higher income brackets because y you can read a bunch of ebooks that are cheaper than. Yeah. Um, that if are you cheaper spend seventy nine dollars, right, but on you've got to spend. Yeah. You have to have the seventy nine dollars to buy right. the entry level Kindle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't know that the number is good or bad. I think it's one of yeah. those numbers that's it's telling. It's interesting, yeah. and there are so many factors that contribute to that. Like, it, if I had to guess, I would guess that this headline is going to get spun into a bunch of like hand wringing across <laughs> the booktornet as the booktornet is great at doing like spending is down on ebooks mm -hmm. and the sky or on books since 1984 and the sky is falling and it's the internet's fault. Um, but I think there's more to the story than that. Um, yeah, I mean, we do know that magazines have shuttered and newspapers and shuttered and that could account for I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what to say about that. That's not really something I chart very well but like the big five publishers are still in business and you know there's a lot of independent and small presses that are still doing well right and, and self that time spent reading like you mentioned according to that other study hasn't really ticked down a significant no. amount and if you consider time spent reading emails just words and, and yeah and tumblr and like just interacting with yeah. text period that's significantly up uh, right. is uh Clive Thompson talks about that a lot in Smarter Than You Think, that um, 
since the internet became what it is, people spend more time reading and they spend much more time writing um, after they graduate high school or college than they ever have before. That before the internet, it was not uncommon for um, mm -hmm. for people to graduate from college and then not really do any writing other than like maybe sending people casual letters. Yeah. Uh, and now you're writing emails, you write Facebook updates, you write tweets, you do stuff on Tumblr, you write captions on Pinterest. Like if you have any kind of life on the internet, you're writing every day. And um, knowing that you have an audience for that writing, even of just a handful of people makes a difference mm -hmm. in how you approach writing. Um, now I'm way down that rabbit hole. <laughs> but, but it's interesting if you if you blow up your idea of what reading and writing are to include the ways that we read and write now that we that weren't available to us, you know, 20 mm -hmm. years ago. Um, I think it's a good story. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, all right, let's see. Where should we go? Ah, next? Speaking of new ways of reading and writing. Uh, oh, do it. Yeah, do yeah, this. So Wattpad, wattpad.com is a um, digital storytelling platform. It's kind of similar to what we were talking about last week with Swoon Reads, which, uh, which sponsored, but Wattpad is open to uh, any kind of writer. You upload your works, uh, you get feedback from other members of the community. Margaret Atwood has endorsed Wattpad and has published some original stuff on and through the Wattpad platform uh, that wasn't available anywhere else, which is pretty cool to see mm -hmm. them uh, getting interaction from big authors like that. But if you're a writer who is you know, wanting to get your work published or even just to be embedded in a community of other writers um, that will give you feedback and to whom you can give feedback. Uh, Wattpad exists for that, which mm. this is a way for writers to connect that wasn't possible 10 years ago. Um, and it's just a cool, uh, you know, we've been watching it for a couple of years. I think it's a pretty cool and fun community and an interesting thing they're doing online. And now they have the Wattpad prize, which uh, they've just announced this week. Um, it will be uh, jury selected uh, based on levels of dedication, expertise, and their influence in the community. So the, the judges of this prize will come out of the Wattpad community and they'll review submissions and select winning stories from works submitted in Wattpad, um, including love stories, the best escape, the best true story, best comedy, best inspirational story, suspense, memoir, tragedy, epics, uh, the most imaginative. And you just have to be over the age of 13 to participate. And you have mm. to have uploaded a completed work uh, by April 30th of 2014. So if you if this sounds like an, an interesting thing to you, a way to get some exposure for your writing and to meet some other writers, uh, wattpad.com, and uh, you can look for the Wattpad prize. We'll drop the link in the show notes, but that just, I got a press release for that this week, and I was mm -hmm. like, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, while you were doing that, I did a quick, uh, I did some research. Oh. Not on Wattpad. I went back to the reading um, expenditure per capita. Mm -hmm. Cause I, we've heard too, that over the last 10 years, library visits are up. Right. And I was wondering if some, especially considering we've had a, a significant recession in the last 10 or 12 years, well, really I mm. go back to 2001 after September 11th, if you wanted to. Um, but over just the last six years, library visits per capita are up 20% in the U S mm. um, the national average, uh, has gone up from it looks 4.3 library visits per capita per year to about 5.4. Okay. So some people are using their libraries more for reading materials. Yeah. And so I guess they would be spending less money uh, 
on uh, stuff they have to buy. So I, I thought that was, you know, I, I like to think both both you and I like to think about um, ancillary factors mm-hmm. that go into how that thing happens. So if if library visits are up twenty percent, I would think that means those people are using library resources at the expense of other mm-hmm. privatized and um, a lot of people are retailers. getting their ebooks from libraries yeah, too so you you don't even have to spend money to buy the ebooks if you have some kind of mobile device or e-reader that can access them mm-hmm. then you can read ebooks for free let's do a fun story we'll just do a quick one here cuz we don't want to we don't like to like just do someone's content right. and like read it on the air but i wanted to talk about this cuz it was funny um this is from jen campbell's blog and she is a librarian in the uk and she has a book um called weird things customers say in bookshops mm-hmm. um and she did a post this week about stuff kids say in bookshops so why don't you and why don't you pick one and i'll pick one as a tease ah. and then if you want if people want to hear the rest or read the rest, they can go and there'll be a, sh- a link at the show notes at bookrat.com slash podcast episode 47. You could read the rest. So you want to, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Uh, you go first. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. Little boy. When I grow up, I'm going to be a book ninja. <sighs> Jen says, what's a book ninja? Little boy. I can't tell you. It's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's cute. Okay, no, you're okay. This is mine. Um, the a little girl whispers to Jen, "They gave us Kindles to use at school, but I prefer books." And Jen says, "What do you love about books?" And the little girl thinks hard and says, "I like how quiet they are." And Jen says, "Yeah." And the little girl says, "Yeah." Stories should be quiet and whisper to you inside your head. Oh, that is a profound child. That is that's a profound child. The profound child. So that's from Jen Campbell's blog. She's the author of the book, the, the bookshop book, and weird things customers say in bookshops. I'm trading her using a little of her content for a plug for her book. <laughs> um, but you, there's some more there, and, and it's a good fun. I story. have I do have weird things customers say in bookshops from when it came out a few years ago, and it is oh, really? it is really funny. Um, this I think this blog post isn't like a nice little hug for your bookish brain. Yeah, uh, and the book in general is just really fun, but also rings really true. Uh, if you've ever thought about like what it beyond like oh gosh it must be nice to be around books all day, what it must really be like to uh, to work in a bookshop shop and deal with the like there was this book in the window like three years ago and it was yellow <laughs> and that's what i'm looking for <laughs> miranda july um right okay we've got i, I mean all, these are we've got a few like kind of new newsy, i guess announcement kind of things. fun interesting things. yeah uh, so, let's see here's, okay this you're the excited about this oh, one man, so you take this i am yeah. so excited we were actually you and i were on the phone together yesterday when mm-hmm. this news came out and i made all kinds of sounds about it um brian cranston who played walter white on breaking bad is going to write a memoir for scribner it's going to come out in 2015 uh so in the fall of 2015 so we have about a year and a half to wait but it will tell the stories uh, of his life and also reveal the secrets and the lies that he lived for six years while shooting Breaking Bad. And I just could not be more excited about <laughs> this. I loved Breaking Bad so much, like so many people did. Um, I also got really hooked on the Breaking Bad Insiders podcast, which was hosted by a woman who was one of the editors of the show. Um, and often had Vince Gilligan, who was the creator of the show. And then they often also had the actors rotating in and out. And um, Brian Cranston was so interesting on those episodes and so intelligent about his craft that I want to hear 
as much as I possibly can about Breaking Bad, but also about the career trajectory that he's taken, like to go from uh, playing Malcolm's dad on Malcolm in the Middle, which <laughs> our good friend Paul Montgomery said to me in an email last night, that's like a real life Homer Simpson mm-hmm. <laughs> to playing, the, you know, Walter White chemistry teacher turned uh, drug lord. is That's a really fascinating choice. I'm so, so so excited like that's there's no more information about it yet just that this is going to happen that's enough i'm ready uh i will i will listen to this on audio for sure (laughs) like i am ready for that brian cranston narrated uh the things they carried earlier this year as an audible exclusive and that was what has been one of the highlights of my audiobook listening life and i just cannot wait to have like brian cranston talking in my ear about life and breaking bad for hours there this book could be 1200 pages and i would read it the whole thing um, I don't have this in the agenda, but speaking of things that we're unapologi- unapologetically excited for, on October 7th of this year, Marilyn Robinson will be releasing the third book in her Gilead trilogy <sighs> called Lila. Um, for those of you who know the trilogy, that's this, that's um, Reverend Ames, who is the protagonist of Gilead. That's his young wife. And it's her story of how she sort of kind of washed up at this Iowa church and got into a relationship with him. And I'm so excited I can barely breathe. So that's also in the, it's also in the new. We'll be uh, taking that day off. Yeah, to yeah. read and wave our Muppet arms. And I'm buying that in print. That one goes in. The, that one goes on the shelf. So right, that's what the holy trifecta of things. Salter that, Morrison and Robinson. Yep. So far, it, I guess there could be someone who announce, announces a book, and I'm like, oh, I have to have that. But I can't think of who it would be right now. Uh, at any rate. Yeah, okay. Salter and Morrison are, are mine for sure. And I need to complete the set on my shelves of the Marilyn Robinsons mm-hmm. in print. To... I don't have a first edition of Gilead. I'm going to have to drum one of those up. Yeah. I have one of Home, the second, and I'm going to have one of this, but I need, I need to get yeah, it. Yeah, my Gilead is a paperback. That, yeah, that's not okay. No, it's not. It's, it, it, but it is, it is well-loved. <laughs> Mo, mine too. I mean, this, I'll keep that for sure. A reading copy. It's all of, marked up and everything. The level of love for Marilyn Robinson between the two of us is, is pretty strong. My one password, like master sentence, is a sentence from Gilead. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I've been trying to hack it. I've just been typing in uh, Gilead sentences, one after the other, trying to get into your one password. It's the one that someday I'll get a tattoo of somewhere. That's Well, at least you'll remember your password. Right. I mean, that's I, a good thing. Like to, I was like, what am I... We, we got one password, everybody at yeah. Book Riot did. And I was like, what am I going to use as my master <laughs> sentence? I was like, well, what do I want to have to type multiple times a day? And so it's become this kind of form of meditation for me to yeah. like every Mine's time. Mine's from the Iliad. And I do feel very much like I'm like an incantation to say Homer or just a type Homer to get into my computer right, yeah, <laughs> every it's, day. It's, it's pretty funny. It, 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 I was like, well, I'm going to put this in my brain and think about it multiple times per day. And so it, it has been, it's kind of become like a, a Cohen for me. Yeah. Um, that's October super 7th nerdy. is sh- shaping up to be a big day. Yeah. Because in- the Lena Dunham is coming out that day. I think there's a couple Man, other things. I'm really excited about that Lena Dunham too. I'm- I am too. I, I I guess we'll talk about this for a second. I am really excited, but I heard her talk a little bit about it on the um, Bill Simmons podcast. Mm. And she just seemed to have her head screwed on so straight in general. And like, she's goofy and funny too. But, and like, the cover design is a shout out to like 70s yeah. books by women, which I'm like, yes, it's I'm great. into that. I love that. <laughs> Um, anyway, so that's October 7th as well. She did a live event with Judy Bloom a couple of months ago that then Mm. McSweeney's did a print edition of the transcript of the interview. Um, Oh, I I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it was like you had to 
you had to buy something from McSweeney's to get right. the print edition unless you work in books and then they send them to you. You as had to buy the Happy Meal copies. to get the toy. Right. And yeah. so it's um, the Judy Bloom and Lena Dunham in conversation, oh, The Believer, which is a McSweeney's thing. So you can go right. to believermag.com and look for it. And I think maybe you can buy this online. But I, I read the whole thing. Of course, I love Judy Bloom, and it was cool to see Lena Dunham in conversation with her and to read her. She's just such a, there's a lot of criticism about her work, but that's what happens when you are a uh, really smart, savvy young woman making your way in an industry that's dominated by men. There are not, I can't think of any other 25 year old women who run their own show for HBO. Oh yeah. I think the number is zero. (laughs) Right. She's a party of one. Party of one. And so I think Uh, even if you don't love her work, it's worth, uh, it'll be interesting to hear her story. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we got off track a little bit, but that's fine. Those are all things we like. Who cares? That's our this show. This is our show. This is our show. Uh, we have, we did a story a while ago about a Hunger Games yeah, theme last, summer. Last uh, summer. Uh, yeah, uh, summer camp. And now, as all things divergent, it's following hard on <laughs> with uh, a divergent theme summer From camp. From Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville. In Naperville, Illinois. Which is just outside, outside Chicago. Oh, okay. You know, you know that well. It is the Chicagoland um, area. So you go for five days, it looks like, and you get sorted, I guess, into one of the personality-based factions. If you've read the book, you know it's Dauntless, Candor, Erudite, Abnegation, and the other one I can't think of. I don't understand any of Amity. this. Amity. Amity. Yeah, you don't know this book. Um and you get you get to learn mixed martial arts, uh, and you can uh, you get some food packs, and oh, actually, I'm sorry, I, I miss I misunderstood it. Each day will be devoted to one faction, so you don't get uh, sorted, but you'll have like okay. the first day. So if you're dauntless, they're like the tough, like crazy people that jump off trains. Amity is they just try to get along. Candor, they always speak honestly. Abnegation, they're very selfless, and erudite are the learned sort of in, uh, knowledge seeking faction. Mm. Um, even the snacks. <laughs> Even the snacks will be themed by faction. Um, so I think the Hunger Games one, we were like, uh, killing each other, yeah. weird. And there were like parental concerns about that. This, yeah. like, not this knowing, is a little not as bad. Yeah, not, not knowing not anything about the books, really. Um, this actually, it sounds like these folks at Anderson's bookshops have their heads on right about how this should work. Like, it's not such a literal translation of the books into the activities. Like, they're going Mm -hmm. to pack up boxes, like, make food packs, but those are going to go to Africa on Abnegation Day. And on Erudite Day, they're going to do brain teasers with local professors. And then politicians will come and discuss ethics on Candor Day. And on Mm. Dauntless Day, you can learn mixed martial arts from a tattooed bodybuilder and cage fighter. Um, and I do know that tattoos are like a thing in the book. And I guess you, oh, yeah, they are. you can't have like a tattoo artist come to the children's <laughs> summer camp to give you a book tattoo. But I would go to an adult. You ad- get henna or temps or something. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I would go yeah. to an adult book themed camp where mm. they had a bunch of tattoo artists who would do literary tattoos. I think that's books tattoos. and bourbon in a cabin. I think <laughs> that's what you're thinking of. Yeah. I think that's what you're thinking. I mean, actually, adult themed book camp sounds like a different thing suddenly. Oh. That's like a different, I think we're maybe crossing the streams too much. (laughs) Okay. Um, But this was actually inspired by book people in Austin for eight years, or excuse me, this will be the eighth annual Camp Half Blood, which Mm. is inspired by the Rick Reardon Percy Jackson, uh, Rick Reardon's Percy Jackson series. Mm -hmm. And they have 700. 
kids That's so come to that thing. Great. Yeah. And it looks like they're going to, it says, discuss other dystopian novels as well, like Joel Charbonneau's Testing Trilogy mm-hmm. and uh, Demetria Lunetta's In the After series, which uh, I haven't heard of. But uh, it says Anderson Bookshops expects Charbonneau and Lunetta, who are Illinois based, to visit the camp. Um, and also, they're hoping that Veronica Roth might pay a visit, but they don't have anything uh, yes. confirmed. Yeah. Reardon has come to the one at, in Austin for book people. He's, he's showed his face there. This sounds pretty cool. Like, I think I would, yeah. I would endorse sending like one of my nieces or nephews to something like this. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, which one I would have gone to as a kid. Like if I was 14, 15, like a Lord of the Rings one, I would Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's what uh, I was into when I was a teenager. I would totally at like 10. Which you haven't read, by the way. Huh? Which you haven't read Hitchhiker's No, I'm going to do it this summer. I'm I'm just going to keep calling you out until I can force you to do it. (laughs) Someday. Someday. You're going to love it. Yeah, I'm stoked. I'm going to read them this summer. That's my summer reading recommendation for you. That's the teaser for our Ah, uh, dads and grads and moms. All right, now I'll have to think about what you have to read this summer. Um, I think when I was like 10, I would have gone to a babysitter's club camp, like to make, Mm. you know, where you like plan games and activities and you make your kid kit with the... uh, books and games and stuff that you're going to take to play with the kids you're babysitting that kind oh of. how about nancy drew we like solve mysteries oh, and stuff sure. that would that would have been awesome like every day is a different mystery and you've got to figure it out that would be fun yeah and you don't have or, the annoying... uh, encyclopedia brown or hardy boys or, or like harriet like the spy yeah and yeah, there's yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what mrs the mixed up files of mrs basil e frankweiler like you could oh, go to the met should do that yeah you could that go would to be summer awesome. camp like a four day even if it was just mornings like book themed camp in the met yes now you were speaking of something of which I am interested. Are your bells ringing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like uh, Notre Dame in here. Um, we got to move on. We, we do. Got more stories. But there's just so many cool things on yeah, the internet okay. this week. Uh, the end this week saw the end of the 2014 term of books um, that the Morning News puts on every year. You and I didn't follow it as closely as we have in the past, but we thought we would mention that the winner, the champion, mm-hmm. um, is actually himself. Uh, the title is actually itself poultry themed, the Good Lord Bird, <laughs> which wins the rooster, which is the the trophy, the award you get if you win the term of books. Too perfect. The, the Good Lord Bird by James McBride, which this fall, or when the fall, right? The National Book Award was in the fall. Time the, is doing I can weird never things remember. to me. Um, won the National Book Award, and then it's followed up its National Book Award win with a rooster win, and it does set it up well. Um, the morning news turn of books has often been a predictor of what will win the Pulitzer mm-hmm. in the years in which it's been an American to have won um, the rooster. And I think there's a good chance the good Lord Bird might pull off the trifecta of the morning news term of books, National Book Award, and the Pulitzer Prize. It was in the finals against Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. Which was the zombie round, I think. Which is a zombie round, yeah. And the final score, so all the judges that participated um, get to score uh, vote in the final, and the final vote was eleven to six for the Good Lord Board. So a pretty Almost decisive victory. Um, anyway, so awesome. that's another. Uh, I haven't vote. read that yet. But I, I think need. I I, will. I'm getting to that. Yeah, I got to get to that. Apparently, it's good on audio too. Is mm. what I've heard. Speaking of, and have you read Eleanor and Park? I haven't, but I'm about. I to. I haven't either. I'm going to read this I, too. With like with giant YA sensations, it takes me about a year to let the yeah. I let the I, yeah, I'm to at let the end the, of the filter to let the hype die down. And <laughs> yeah. also, since I don't read a ton of YA, me I either. usually wait and like listen for people who know my taste to say like it's not just the big sensation, but like you will enjoy this one. Um, yeah, it's like the equivalent of the Oscars. Like for me, it's like I would only read like 
the one that won Best Picture right. for YA. Like, I'm interested, but I'm not super deep right. and, into well, it. I like a lot of edge in my fiction, and so I tend uh-huh. to I tend to have a hard time finding that in YA. And I'm sure that it's mostly because I just don't really know what to look for. But like, I lean towards A.S. King in YA rather than like John Green. Ernest doesn't do it for me, mm-hmm. um, and. So I'm, I don't know if I'm going to dig Eleanor and Park. I have been told that fangirl is going to like scratch a bunch of my itches. Mm-hmm. So I think that that of the rainbow rolls will probably be the one that I like better, but Eleanor and Park has a curly redheaded protagonist. So I don't see how I can't at least give it a shot. Um, it does seem like in fealty to your people, <laughs> you should at least give that a go. Team ginger. So, oh, um, we don't even, we didn't even say what we're talking oh. about. It's going to be a movie. <laughs> That's what, we call, that's what we call bearing the lead. We're so distractible Professional this journalism at work. <laughs> it's going to be a movie, and not just that, but Rainbow Roll is going to write the screenplay, which is pretty great because yeah, the last... Like this. Yeah, and the last several big YA novels by women that have gotten turned into movies have been written... The movies have been written by dudes. Wait, uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, well, Collins wrote the Hunger Games screenplays. I guess okay, maybe, maybe if you take that one out, I guess that's like just the one. That all jumps the to Harry mind. Potter ones. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, she's writing the three new ones, right? Yeah, uh, but Harry Potter. Interesting. I think v- the Veronica Roth ones had a male screenwriter, right? I'm not or sure, Divergent but you're did. probably right. Yeah. Um, so I'm. That's just for that alone. I'm really excited. It's cool to see the writer herself get a shot at it, um, and it not just be the boys' club of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I do like, and I think this is a dialogue. Um, dependent book from what I've heard. And anytime you can get the original writer on for a book like that, a novelist adapting their books doesn't always work well. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, if it's a uh, languagey, you know, a lot of talking and saying of the words, um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the novelist the tends to do a little bit better. Uh, Man, we got to We got to get cooking here. Okay, so, so that's coming out. Let's talk our one book riot related uh, or story this week is uh, Rebecca hosted, shepherded, crunched the numbers for our poll about our to-be-read piles from Book Riot readers. And I was agog, aghast, <laughs> bumfuzzled, and perplexed by the numbers of to-be-reads uh, that people have. So we had 1,092 respondents, mm-hmm. um, and of those... 1,017 do indeed keep a to-be-read pile, and only 46 of us noble souls do not keep a to-be-read pile. Average number of books on your TBR, 335. And the range was zero (laughs) to 5,083. And the mode, the most frequently occurring, was 100, but that could be an artifact of some weird chunking um, uh, that goes on. So we asked... We asked a couple of questions. We asked, um, do you keep a list of books that you want to read? And like you said, Jeff, um, 1,017 people said yes, and only 46 said no. Then we said, how many books are currently on your TBR? Um, the average was was 335, and the mode was 100. How many books do you own that you haven't read yet? Um, mm. That range was zero to 4,000, uh, but the average was 190. And then we also, Man. yeah, we also asked, where do you keep your TBR list? And the answers to that question, or the answer was overwhelmingly Goodreads, followed by a bunch yeah, of... Yeah, 658 people out of yeah. um, the 1092, right. so should, well more than half. I should say we did not um, define what 
TBR is. We wanted it to be open. And I discovered after we rolled out the survey that people have all kinds of definitions for it. Like some people think of their TBR as only the stack of books that they own that they haven't read yet. Mm -hmm. And other people think of their TBR as the massive list of every book they ever want to read or are maybe interested in. And so that accounts, I think, for some of that huge variation in the range. Um, of, yeah. of how many, but also lots of people. And this is, I guess, maybe what happens when book people take quantitative <laughs> surveys, <laughs> um, wrote in things like over 500 or hundreds or for the like, how many, how many books do you have that you haven't read yet? Things like three bookshelves worth. Uh, <laughs> that's which a is, standard unit. Right. Uh, which is not, that you didn't know that. Right, that's not, one bookshelf. It's not quantifiable. Like so I did some careful rounding. And if someone said, I own hundreds of books, I rounded that down to 100. Because mm -hmm. hundreds, I think means you have at least 100. And so that was if I had to assign a number for it, that was the only safe guess. So yeah, right. um, all the information about the methodology is there <laughs> in the post. And if you care to drag me into methodology corner after you take a look at it, listeners, I'm happy to answer questions or hear your criticism there. I but, mean, it's a fuzzy number, but it's a transparently yeah, fuzzy you know, number, if that I makes sense. I actually did not take the survey because I didn't know how to answer the question. <laughs> It's like, oh, bad design. Well, if you can't, what, what well, do you no, mean I think, you don't know like, how to answer So it? you talk about having TBR zero. Like you don't really, you don't keep a list. You just sort of wait until it's time to buy your next book. And then you go and you uh -huh. buy your next book, which I've heard you say though, like, I'm going to read this next. Like, yeah. and so I think you, you have sort of a mental TBR of like one, one. one yeah. Um, I have a pile of stuff in my house that is books that have come in from publishers and the pile is like, I might read this maybe someday. And then once a month I sort those out and get rid of all the ones that I no longer think I might maybe someday read. Um, but I don't really think of that as my TBR cause it's like, maybe someday I will care about this book. Um, gotcha. I have like maybe 20 eBooks that I've bought that I haven't read yet that I'll get to at some point. So maybe that's my TBR, but I never know what I'm going to read next. Like I never decide what to read until it's time to start something else. Yeah. That's, that's the reason I don't keep a TBR really is like, I always like to choose in the moment and um, you know, I don't, to have 50 books on my shelf that I haven't read but would like to would drive me crazy. Oh, see, I kind of love that. Like, yeah. what do I have? What's just calling to me? Yeah, I, I don't like that. I think um, the proliferation of digital ways to keep a TBR, like if you look, Goodreads is 658 out of 1092, but then also on your e-reader um, and a mobile device, Amazon wish list, other retail site, other social network comprise like 80% yeah, yeah, of the TBRs. A hundred, so it's just so easy to like add something to your TBR. So we're getting a little TBR bloat right, to that and, 335 number. And only 170 people said they kept their list on something involving paper, yeah. uh, journal, notebook, notepad, or post-its. And then 39 people said that their TBR was a physical stack or a shelf. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, those. these were write-ins. Like I just said, where do you keep your TBR? And we let people write in whatever they wanted. They could write in multiple things. And then I broke out the most common categories and coded things. Um, and mm -hmm. lots of people um, said that they used multiple sources. Um, so it, I saw a lot of like Goodreads plus spreadsheet or Goodreads plus a journal. Um, but yep. over overwhelmingly uh, people are using Goodreads. I thought a lot more people would be using their like Amazon or ebook e retailer hmm. wish list. Um, I don't know why I thought that, but other than anecdotally, that's how my husband keeps track of things he wants to read. Um, mm -hmm. And he's a pretty like, you know, sort of typical 
reader. Yeah, I think who knows, maybe he's not maybe he's a weirdo. And it's always hard to know that's this is the problem with anecdata. Uh, so for in general, assume they're a weirdo. Yeah, let's, that's probably I fair. mean, he I married him. So yeah, right there. You are. <laughs> it's a, but let's talk about damning evidence. Let's talk about data, 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 data. Uh, Nate Silver, who famously predicted a bunch of stuff about the uh, 2012 election and had 538.com has recently relaunched it. And it's an awesome stats about everything website. Uh, and one of the other writers there, his name is Walt Hickey, did an analysis of um, the dollars and cents, the piece is called the dollars and cents case against Hollywood's exclusion of women. And so um, they went and looked at movies that passed the Bechdel test and don't. And the Bechdel test uh, comes from Alison Bechdel from an interview she did uh, many years ago where she said, you know, that she looks for a work of art to have two, at least two named female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man. And mm -hmm. uh, we apply this to books. We've talked a lot about um, books that do or don't do a very good job of um, presenting real and fully developed female characters and that on principle, we believe that's important. But what the results of this study show is that um, movies, uh, he took the budget and then the box office totals mm -hmm. for a bunch of movies. And it's cool that that information is publicly available because it's not publicly available for books um, in terms of what the, like what the advance to the author plus the house's publicity budget was, I guess, right. um, plus the total number of sales or the um, profit from a book. And they found that movies that have meaningful uh, female characters with meaningfully developed relationships perform better dollar for dollar than movies that don't. Yep. So if you can't be motivated by the principle alone, be motivated by the dollars, man. So in the U.S. and Canada, for movies that pass passed the Bechdel test, um, they earned $1.37 for every dollar spent on their mm -hmm. creation. And that's the, the highest of the four categories. There was the pass the Bechdel test, and then three categories of fail. One is women only talk about men, women don't talk to each other, and fewer than two women. Fewer than two women uh, performed the worst, meaning you earned a dollar for every dollar you spent, so you broke even. Women who don't talk to each other, $1.22 for every dollar spent. And women only talk about men, $1.31. So it's between 37 and 3% yeah. better uh, to pass the Bechdel test. So I think it's, I, that's something that's, we wish we had this for books and we don't because publishers don't tell us things. Right. There's, there's just not transparency about this kind of data in publishing. We don't know about advances. We don't right. know how much it costs for a particular book, what the marketing budget was. And then we don't know what um, aggregate I mean, sales you could do a, dollars worth. You could do a version of it, I guess, with um, like looking at maybe the top 100 books of a year uh, yeah. or something according you'd have to do you'd have to use some sort of proxy like the new york times bestseller list and then look at the characters and their relationships in those books but you couldn't get to nearly this robust of a result uh, mm -hmm. so i think it's cool to see this i'm happy that there's this correlation between um, presenting meaningful uh, relationships between female characters in art and the art doing better than art that doesn't have those. Um, I wish that we could have this for publishing. I Just, wish so yeah, hard. I know, I know. We know. There's so much data we'd like to have. Just two more notes on this study. Um, this tracked the time period 1990 to 2013 
uh, they say that data has significantly more depth and mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure what that means. And they give us a chart too of just the movies that fail and pass. And this, they, Bechteltest.com and 538 both had looked at movies going back to 1970 uh-uh. for this. Um, and from about 70 to about 90, 95, mm-hmm. there'd been a real uptick in the number of movies passing the Bechdel test. But since then, it's been very flat at right about mm. 50% or just below 50%. So that's something else in the data I found interesting that during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, things were getting better. And now they've really leveled off. And really in the last three sort of three-year segments that they break down, there's been like slight ticks down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's maybe comic book movies. Uh, that's my guess. And there's also a, a graph here of the median budget for films since 1990 broken out by category. And so the the median budget for a film since 1990 that passes the Bechdel test was $31.7 million. Um, the median budget for a film where women only talk about men is $39.7 million. This is what makes me real sad is that the median budget, this is the highest one in the category by a lot for movies, uh, where women don't talk to each other at all. is $56.6 million. You know, and maybe that is not to confound these factors, but couldn't you make the case that it's maybe not that they pass the Bechdel test, but that they have more moderate budgets that make them more profitable? Hmm. It's but it, the analysis was dollar for dollar. Right. But if the ones that passed the Bechdel test also had the smallest budgets, hmm. you could correlate it that way you to could. some degree. Yeah. I mean, it could be that. Pro- I'm guessing one thing that's happening too is there's been some giant flops. Like you think John Carter for Mars is an mm. example. Like those $250 million budget and made like a hundred. Right. So those giant turkeys at the top end. Um, giant show turkeys title, at the top end. <laughs> uh, you know, really weigh things. I, you know, I'd like this to be true and I, I think it probably is yeah. true on the whole, but I'm just trying to think yeah, we do confounding factors right, for stats right. we don't like. Right. So we should do them for ones that right, we do. Right, of course. Do. There's some, I there are good questions to be asked here. For sure, um, anyway. they do note. I think it's in this piece that they note that the Hobbit um, was, you know, for oh, right. that both of the ones, the, both of the Hobbit movies that have been released have really high budgets, and they don't. Even, the Hobbit doesn't even have two named female characters in mm-hmm. it. Uh, so there, well, you think there's of some like outlier pieces there too. You think of uh, what was the Avatar? I'm not sure that does, it has one female character, but she talked to any other women. I don't know. Well, yeah, there's <laughs> the the female blue character and there's Sigourney Weaver, but I don't think they speak yeah. to each other. Um, and then many of the new Marvel movies wouldn't pass yeah, the Bechdel test. Does Pepper talk to Scarlett Johansson in the Avengers movies? Like one time. To- and it's not Iron about Man Tony Stark. Two, in Iron Man 2, there's like one time they talk to each other, but I think it's about Tony Stark. Uh, anyway, That's all right. We, if I were, this is a different thing, and we're not If I were dealing with Tony Stark, I'd be talking about him, <laughs> too. That's fine. Uh, Call me all right. RDJ. Uh, all right. So we, gotta, we have to do our next sponsor. Let's do our next sponsor. Uh, Oyster is back, and we love them. Uh, Oyster is unlimited ebooks for $9.95 a month. Right now, on just your Apple-compatible device, your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod Touch. Uh, but they do have Android coming out earlier this year. It's a later, library. Later this year. Huh? Later, Later this, this year. year. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> We're going. They're going back to the future. <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, 
It's a library at your fingertips. You and I both have uh, been using Oyster since they rolled out. We love it. Uh, They're pioneering a better way to read by giving members unlimited, it's like all you can eat, instant access to a library of books uh, that are high quality and it's constantly growing. Uh, Right now they have over 100,000 titles across all kinds of genres. If you can think of it, they've got something there. Um, Award winners, bestsellers, New York Times picks, uh, deep, delicious backlist. And it was the first unlimited ebook subscription model that came to market and had a big five publisher on board. And that's HarperCollins, who, uh, as we've said many times, has an awesome chief digital officer that is all for trying uh, trying new things and experimenting with technology. So you can read a ton of HarperCollins titles, um, including some of my favorite romance authors, uh, Sarah McLean and Julia Quinn are on HarperCollins Avon imprint. And you can give those a shot. But they also include a lot of smaller publishers and some self-publishing aggregators and everything in between. So uh, Houghton Mifflin, which publishes the Best American series every year, uh, Rodale, Melville House, Other Press, Smashwords, which is uh, kind of similar to what Wattpad is doing in a, a writing community and self-publishing, Perseus. Uh, you can give it a 30-day free trial, oysterbooks.com slash bookriot, um, to you know, just test it out, see what the app looks like. Uh, it's beautifully designed. The reading experience is wonderful. And they have, I think, really terrific in-app discovery um, where you can search by genre or by title or author. But they also do these great sort of curated themed lists of um, every, I think every week or so, they roll out a new list that has 15 or 20 titles on it um, with descriptions from their editors about why they love those books. Um, I, I never have a hard time finding something in Oyster nope, that never gonna have a hard time. that looks good. These editorial sets are great. And pretty soon at oysterbooks.com slash book riot, you won't just be able to get um, information about Oyster, but you'll also be able to see some of our favorite picks. We, right. we made a list there. So if you're giving it a shot, you get your first 30 days free. After that, it's $9.95 a month. If you read one or two ebooks a month from them. It's, I think, worth the cost. Definitely. Uh, and so great. Like we were talking about found reading time with audiobooks. Um, I have definitely had this with ebooks thanks to Oyster, where I've been, especially that Best American series. Like I used to buy those in print and I would somehow start them and like never finish reading the Best American short stories because <laughs> uh, it's like it's fun and then I get distracted by something else. Uh, but I've been, you know, just like popping it open in Oyster and reading the Best American essays from 2013 was edited by Cheryl Strayed, uh, whom I love. And it's been great to like, you know, we're sitting waiting for the movie to start at the theater or something. And I read one essay. And it was Oyster that turned you on to reading onto your phone, right? It was. It was Oyster. I didn't. We tried it out when it came out in the fall, and you're like, ah, it's on my phone. I'm like, Shinsky, just try it. And you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, it was great. And now um, I have an iPad mini, and so I do most of my e reading that way. But I love that, like, an Oyster syncs across your devices yeah, that's automatically. So, great. Um, so if I read, if I start an essay while I'm like sitting at the, in the waiting room somewhere, and then later I'm at the gym, I can finish the essay while I'm ready for that class to start. I read, I read like a four page chunk of an essay while I'm sitting at the gas station while Bob is getting gas, like all those little moments that before I would just be sort of like twiddling or checking Twitter or something. I'm, <laughs> I'm reading now and it's more books into my brain. Uh, that's oysterbooks.com slash book, You can find out all about there, start your free 30 day trial. And that also tells them that you came from us and they will like us forever and ever. 
which that's what we're in it for, being liked forever. Yes. That's what we're doing here. We got some new books this new week. New books. This is such a week for new good, books good week. and for paperback. Um, uh, some nonfiction to kick. Actually, I think all the all the new mm. new titles. Oh yeah, are the exams nonfiction. Is, uh, uh, yeah, great. Uh, the first one is the Confidence Code by Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman. Uh, it is a very well researched book about uh, sort of the sociology of women in the workplace, and I think it's a really nice companion read to um, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. Um, Sandberg talks in her book a lot about how one of the things that holds women back from advancing in the workplace is a lack of confidence in their ability. And she refers to some studies that say that, uh, like, if there's a job listing for a promotion, that uh, men who uh, apply for the promotion will apply for it if they meet 60% of the criteria listed, but women don't apply for that promotion, like in major huge mm. studies, um, unless they meet 90 to 100% of the criteria. Um, and this is just one of the pieces of data that she refers to frequently. And uh, Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman went and pulled a ton of studies similar to that and also conducted interviews with women who have progressed um, to very high power positions in their industries um, and in the military and in the government and uh, all sorts of businesses. And, and so they do a nice job, I think, uh, of combining the quantitative stuff, what we know about um, the differences that in how uh, men and women behave in classrooms and workplaces and sort of the sociological roots of that and combine it with advice from women who have overcome those challenges and advanced in their fields. Um, I think if you want to read Lean In and The Confidence Code and Daring Greatly by Brene Brown all together, like that's a really awesome three-pack for becoming a badass at work. Mm. Um, if you're raising girls or you have like, you know, young girls in your life in some way, um, this definitely made me think about, I have five nieces uh, that range in age from five to 15. And it definitely made me think about like the ways that we talk to uh, young girls in our lives about uh, pursuing their uh, pursuing their goals, but also presenting their opinions and like not apologizing for what you think uh, or not hesitating to assert an opinion. Uh, you know, there's interesting research about how men and women are perceived in workplaces um, for presenting the exact same information. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, um, and it's, it's maddening, but they, uh, Kay and Shipman do a really great job in the confidence code of being like, okay, so this is terrible, but here's what we can do about it. And so it sucks that uh, a a man who says this thing in a meeting gets perceived as assertive and a woman who says the exact same thing is not perceived as assertive, but is perceived as a B word. Um, but if that's the reality, then what do you do to work around that um, and to still be successful and ambitious and sort of, you know, reach your full potential as a, a woman who's pursuing a goal? Uh, I think it's interesting that studies like that, that confirm kind of cultural feelings a lot of people have are so helpful because mm -hmm. you're like, I'm not, uh, 
I'm not crazy, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I am actually being gaslighted by by American <laughs> culture, right? Like, right. this is a thing, and I'm not making it up, and it's not just my own perception or some distortion, and it's or by by contrast, if you don't experience it yourself because you're a dude or whatever, mm-hmm. you're like people aren't just making this up or complaining, which you shouldn't be saying anyway. But if you were, stop it, right? And this is why. And it's a, I think it's a really great read for men also mm. because a thing that uh, that Cheryl Sandberg talks about and that Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman talk about too is that for for women to progress um, and like crack the glass ceiling in new and important ways requires not just women taking these steps and like sort of overcoming the social boundaries that are set up, but also it requires men who are already in powerful positions to advocate for those women and to be like, oh wait, so this is a woman saying this thing. Um, how would I be responding if a man were saying the exact same thing? What is the, like re- just really what is the goal and what's being done here and what can I do um, as a man who has power and access to give women the same kinds of opportunities that we give men. Um, So if you're, yeah, if you're a dude, if you're a father of a daughter, um, it's interesting and important information. Um, And yeah, it's nice to actually have data to back up those things that we, that we talk about as sort of cultural phenomena and to know that they are real. Um, There's a ton of of good studies and you could go just way down the rabbit hole reading through the things that they list in the bibliography of the book too. Um, That was a very long pitch, but it's a good book. (laughs) (laughs) This next book, The Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson comes out, is out now Mm -hmm. from Grey Wolf. And I have to tell you, um, getting some really interesting responses. I haven't read it yet. Have you read this already? It is so good. I've read Um, it one and a half times. One and a half times. Well, maybe you should do the pitch. I can at least set it up for you. I'll put it on the T. From Personal Loss to Phantom Diseases, a bold and brilliant collection, as Publisher Weekly says, it's about trying to figure out how to be uh, empathetic and how you can do it and also what the limits of empathy are and what that means. It starts when uh, Leslie Jameson is trying to make a career as a writer, but the way that she is paying her bills uh, is by being a medical actor. So for people who are in med school and they do practice appointments with actors who come in and present like a set of symptoms and then the med student has to diagnose and treat them, one of the things that med students are graded on in those interactions is how well they convey empathy. Mm -hmm. And um, the opening essay of the book is Leslie Jameson writing about uh, sort of how weird that is. Like you're, you're, (laughs) you're graded on how you convey empathy. um, And the actors are asked to rate how well the medical students did that. Like, how do we really think about that? And how do we convey empathy, but also like, how do we not just show someone I am being empathetic to you, but how do we actually become empathetic? Right. Um, Mimicking empathy is one thing. Right. Um, And so that was doing it is something. And if you're in a situation where it's already sort of a false um, setup, you're, they're a student, you're an actor, um, and they are trying to act like doctors and convey empathy. There's a lot of interesting layers and she pulls it apart. I just, I think she pulls it apart really beautifully, but she also goes to like a conference that's um, a collection of people who believe that they all have this same illness that no doctor or study has actually confirmed exists, but these people have a community with each other online um, uh, from a shared set of symptoms. Mm. And so she has the like several questions in that piece. Like, is this really 
an illness or like, are these people making it up? But even if the illness doesn't exist, these people feel real pain. And mm -hmm. so how do you try to wrap your head around that and show empathy for a person? It's like the opposite of the placebo effect. Right, somehow. yeah. How do you right. show empathy? And like empathy implies a certain amount of understanding of someone's pain um, for something that you're not sure exists. And there are just, you know, multiple other examples through the book. It is really brilliant. Um, I think we're going to hear a lot about it. I, I got a galley several months ago and I read the whole thing when, when it came out. And then last weekend I picked it back up knowing we were going to talk about it on the show. And I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to flip through this. And then I ended up doing my half extra <laughs> read. Um, it's really great. Uh, and so cool to see a young woman who's writing a collection of base of personal essays, basically getting so much attention for it mm. from a small publisher. Like it's, it is a hard thing to sell a book of personal essays. Um, and it's even a harder thing to get major publications to pay attention um, and sell the crap out of them. And I hope that happens for her. Yeah, for sure. This um, next one's you. This is, I did this. Michael Lewis has a new book out this week called Flash Boys, which is about high street, uh, excuse me, high speed trading on Wall Street. Um, the invention and the execution of nanosecond scale trading and algorithms, um, which I'm fascinated. Mm -hmm. There's, I, I'm interested in the economy in general, but also computers and decision making um, and uh, unanticipated consequences mm -hmm. of new technology. Michael, and I read, Michael Lewis is one of those writers that I will read whatever he's interested in. He's one of our, if not the great sort of American muckraker of uh, book length, book length, uh, book length nonfiction. He wrote Liar's Poker. He wrote the book. I can't remember the name of it. That debunked the three cups of tea guy. Oh yeah, he did Moneyball. Uh, yeah, he did Moneyball, which I love. Um, and he's 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 also like he kind of he walks the walk a little bit too in terms of thinking differently because he doesn't take he hasn't take advances for his last two books. Mm. Because he thinks he wants to, he, he's with Norton, which is a smaller press. So he's like, he doesn't want to financially burden them by taking an advance. And he'll just take whatever his royalties are as they come. So that I think is cool. And the other thing that's cool is he only hands his book two months before the publication date. Huh. Um, his old publisher, he got tired of uh, with Liar's Poker. I think they sat on the finished manuscript for nine months. Oh, gosh. And he's like, this is bonkers. I can't do this. And he writes about you know, more current events yeah. and things change so fast that um, a book about like say the three cups of tea or flash boys. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stuff he's talking about are going on every nanosecond of every trading day. <laughs> so it's, it's super applicable. And he writes really in-depth stories about things that go overlooked, but that matter and in, in a really engaging way. So that's flash boys by Michael Lewis. I'm going to be looking into the audio because for that, because I like nonfiction um, yeah. flavored audio. I think I might listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a discussion it. of it on CNBC the other morning because mm -hmm. now I'm a person who watches CNBC <laughs> in the morning. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it looked interesting. They were, they had all kinds of cool conversation about it. Two paperback shout outs this week, um, both for things that we love at Book Riot and that are loved by not just me and you, but by many of our contributors. The first is Lexicon by Max Berry is out in paperback this week. My standard pitch for that for the last year has been that it's like X-Men 
Grossman meets Lev Grossman's The Magicians. But, that's a good pitch. Uh, the, that's a good pitch. I'm pretty proud of that pitch. It might be my best like elevator capsule thing about a book ever. Um, but instead of learning like magic or superpowers, they learn how to use words and the power of persuasion to control people. Uh, it was also the pick in our very first quarterly box, and uh, Max Berry did some cool things for us there. So if you haven't read it yet, it's out in paperback now. It's great for summer. It'll scratch that like adventure but really smart story itch the world is uh, that he creates is interesting and fun uh, and then since we're on a nonfiction role other than that <laughs> gulp by mary roach is also out in paperback and uh speaking of like book length nonfiction about interesting weird things yeah. uh this is a journey on the alimentary canal which is your digestive tract basically um or stuff you eat and where it goes yeah when i interviewed her last year she was like from your mouth to your butthole <laughs> Which you got to love a writer who does not take herself seriously. <laughs> the book is just full of fun facts and gross things and like stuff that you never knew about how you eat and what happens to your food after you eat. And also like the history of how we started studying digestion, which is really strange. Uh, and it's awesome. And if you think that that nonfiction is not fun, like if you're a person who doesn't dig nonfiction because it just seems like nonfiction would be dry because it's trying to teach you stuff, then Mary Roach is definitely the place to start to bust up your bias about that. One of our great footnoters. Oh as yeah, well, Mary Roach. She will go so far just to make one like dirty, silly joke in the footnotes. <laughs> it's so admirable. <laughs> uh, that's on paperback. Yes. Gulp by Mary Roach now, and that's our show. Indeed a good it show, is. A king-size show. Many things in this show. As always, if you want to tell us something, you can drop us an email, podcast at bookriot.com, especially interested in recommendation or recommendation requests for dads, grads, moms, summer, whatever. We'll be doing that show in a few weeks, so get them into us as soon as you think of it. You can always find the show notes. To the link We'll drop the links to the stories we talked about this week and to the books we mentioned. You can find those at bookriot.com slash podcast. Um, Rebecca mentioned the quarterly box, which is a monthly, excuse me, a quarterly subscription service, 50 bucks a quarter. So every three months, um, we're describing it and we're stealing a review of it, a quarterly care package for your reading soul will at least come with one book and some other book related things. It's fun. It's like getting a little Christmas gift, um, from us to you that you have paid for <laughs> every, every quarter you can sign up there. What's the, what's the link? Quarterly.co slash products. And you'll products. see book riot right there. You'll see us right there in the big black and gold and white of BR. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Reading Ape. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And I think that's it. That is it. Thank you that's our show. to Oyster Books and to Squarespace for sponsoring. And we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>